G Suite by Google Cloud is a suite of cloud-based productivity tools that includes Gmail, Docs, Slides, Sheets, and Drive. You can make real-time updates to the same document without having to keep track of multiple versions. And since all the tools are cloud-based, your whole team can access the same document and work on the same page at the same time. Make it with G Suite by Google Cloud. To find out more, visit gsuite.com. Unleash the most powerful Pixel ever on the network chosen by Google, Verizon. Pixel 3 has more than just a camera. It has the power of Google Lens, which means you can search what you see. Pixel 3 gives you Google Assistant, so you can make reservations, buy tickets, check your commute, check the weather, get flight updates, and more, all with a simple squeeze or just by using your voice. And when you get the Pixel 3 on Verizon, it comes with America's best network. Visit your local Verizon store today or learn more at vzw.com. say the road ain't no place to start a family. This is The Ringer MLB Show. My name is Michael Bauman. I'm a staff writer at The Ringer. As always, we are part of The Ringer Podcast Network, which is itself a part of TheRinger.com, which is home to two articles I wanted to point your attention to. Two of my favorite Ringer writers have gone long on college basketball coaches this week. We have Meg Schuster on the consistently excellent Lindsey Whalen of the University of Minnesota and Katie Baker on the consistently shirtless Eric Musselman of the University of Nevada, Reno. Uh, both of those articles are worth your time, so go check those out. But now, without further delay, it's back to baseball with Zach Cram and Ben Lindbergh. All right, I'm joined today by my colleagues and, I hope, friends. I actually don't know how much you guys like me, whether whether you guys come on here out of uh, your own free will or out of obligation. But anyway, Ben Lindbergh. Ben. Hi. I'm obligated to be here, but I also enjoy being here. Oh, okay. You always sound kind of obligated. But, <laughs> and Zach Cram, who always sounds a little bit more free willy. Hey, you're okay. <laughs> okay. All right. So last week we recorded about this time on Tuesday, and then all of the interesting baseball news happened in the next about 18 hours after we uh, after we hit stop. So uh, I hope the, the rest of this week will be a little bit slower and we'll be a little bit more up to date. But we had uh, breaking news last night or sort of yesterday afternoon into last night. And a uh, Strange situation out of Seattle and not the kind of strangeness that uh, that we're used to. Uh, Dr. Lorena Martin has accused uh, the Mariners of accused general manager Jerry DePoto, manager Scott Service and director of player development Annie McKay of gender and racial discrimination. Uh, she was one year into a three year uh, contract to to work on the team's uh, mental skills uh, development and uh, was let go uh, after the season. Uh, there's all sorts of details uh, in the story by TJ Cottrell of the News Tribune of Tacoma, Washington. She spoke to him and laid out a couple instances of, or actually several instances of service in DePoto and McKay. She qu- quotes Jerry DePoto as, as calling her a cocky Latina in a meeting earlier early in the year. Uh, she says service uh, made disparaging remarks about the intelligence of uh, Latin American ball players, particularly uh, Dominicans, um, this is disturbing, shocking. I, I, I think is the uh, the adjective I would use to describe it. Yeah, I was going to go with astonishing, but I am with you on those two. So I think that first of all, you know, she is an incredibly accomplished person. If you haven't looked at her resume and the rundown, she has every degree under the sun. She's held impressive positions. I cannot vouch for her performance with the Mariners, but when she was hired a year ago, Jerry DePoto described her as a unicorn because she just seemed so uniquely well-qualified for this position. So 
it is very surprising that things have gone way, way south here one way or another. And if what she is alleging is true and if these remarks were made, it really would be astonishing. And I don't mean to cast doubt on her claims because I have no knowledge of whether they're true or not. I just mean that if they are true, we're talking about Al Campanis, Ted Koppel in 1987 yeah. sort of stuff or worse than that. And this is coming from a GM and a manager and a player development director. It strains belief in the sense that you would not want to think that this sort of thing could happen in baseball today. And these are to some extent public figures. And that would be even more disturbing if it were true. My shock at this, I mean, it's it's incredible that somebody would somebody that high up in a, a baseball organization would say stuff like that. But I think part of that is just I don't I don't want to believe that somebody that high up in a baseball organization uh, would would talk that way, particularly to an employee. Um, you know, particularly like imagine somebody thinking or uh, feeling that strongly about the intelligence of Dominican ball players, strongly enough to to say it out loud. That's right. I mean, that's, it's incredible. And I don't want, you know, these people actually say and believe these things, but just because I don't want to disbelieve what Dr. Martin, uh, said just because I don't want these things to be true. So I think there's a, you know, it's shocking and, and MLB is going to investigate. And I don't know, like I perhaps naively thought that, that we were past this sort of thing. I would, potentially push back on the notion that it's so astonishing, though, not necessarily that these specific people would say these specific things, but just the notion that a major league organization would have someone in a high-ranking position who says and thinks these things isn't that hard to believe. It's kind of you know what you see people talking about these days with putting the quiet part and saying it out loud. Like, if these things were said, I mean... There was one line that stuck out to me in this uh, News Tribune report that Scott Service uh, told Martin that you don't see Latino catchers or managers Mm -hmm. because, quote, they aren't bright enough, they are dumb. And even if— Which is almost—I mean, Ben (laughs) mentioned Al Campanis. I mean, that's almost exactly what he said about Mm -hmm. African-American managers and general managers 30 years ago. Right, Mm -hmm. but if you think about that statement— there are very few managers who aren't white. There are very few front office high-ranking executives who aren't white in the game today. And even if you know people who are making these hiring decisions aren't explicitly saying, we're not hiring you because we don't think you're bright enough, it's kind of you know the notion that people who aren't white are underqualified is perhaps borne out just by these very hiring practices and you know not giving people opportunities when they deserve them so if that's sort of lifting back the lid to to let us see into why these inequitable decisions are being made i don't think that's particularly astonishing yeah it wouldn't surprise me if there were this implicit bias in baseball i, I think right. there almost certainly is i think What really would shock me is if it were stated explicitly, even just from a a self-preservation standpoint. But I think what you're saying is true. And and Michael, I think we talked to uh, LaTroy Hawkins on an episode of this podcast in the past about the lack of African-American pitchers and catchers. And it's notable that that's the case. And it's certainly true in the coaching ranks and the managerial ranks as well. And it's also probably important to point out just for context that 
you know, I'm working on this book about player development. And so I've kind of been immersed in this world recently. And I actually interviewed Dr. Martin as well as Andy McKay. And none of this came up in those conversations with either of them. Although Dr. Martin did say that, you know, she has encountered some sexism in this world. And that's not surprising at all, because one of the reasons I spoke to her was that there are so few people with her background in this world. It's really, really hard to find women who are working at field-level roles with players in clubhouses, in player development. It's even rarer to find women who are persons of color, as she was. So she is very much a minority in an extremely male-skewed context here. And that doesn't necessarily tell us anything about what actually happened here. But I think it's important to point out that she is very much a a pioneer. She was the first woman in this role for a major league team. It's a, a fairly new role as it is. A lot of teams are hiring these people to run their sports science departments or high performance departments that sort of link mental skills and training and recovery and nutrition and all of these areas that teams are getting into. And so she was very much a a trailblazer. So you would expect maybe some resistance and some friction there and, and certainly with players, but it doesn't sound like players were the problem here, according to her account. No. And the other thing is sort of floating around this, uh, this whole episode is the possibility that uh, she was let go for performance-related reasons, or they couldn't, um, you know, they couldn't get along. It, and she even uh, said that in the News Tribune article that uh, she felt that she wasn't let to to be able to do her job. And yeah, you know, I even if that's true, that doesn't mean that her claims of gender or racial discrimination aren't valid. I don't want to impugn Dr. Martin by comparing her to Angel Hernandez, but uh, you know, he filed the the grievance uh, saying that he was passed over for assignments or promotions based on based on his race. And everybody jokes about Angel Hernandez being a, a bad umpire, but it's also, you know, it's not implausible that uh, his complaints about racial discrimination could also be true. Plausible, you know, probably even likely. So, you know, whatever personal or performance issues um, the Mariners had with her, you know, that doesn't automatically mean that that she's misremembering or, or, or lying. You know, I, I think I think it's good that, you know, she threatened to to file a lawsuit in the news article. I hope she does. I hope MLB's investigation, which they announced was uh, launched today, turns up new information on this because whatever you think about any of the parties involved, we can't, you know, we as a baseball community can't ignore this. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think there's a lot of ugliness that comes out of accusations like this because you have people with their tribal affiliations to a team mm-hmm. that just kind of instinctively react and say, oh, well, she was fired and she's bitter and she's just making up these stories. And we just can't know whether that's true or untrue. It has to be investigated and will be. And hopefully we will find out the truth and we'll see whether these claims can be corroborated because. Some of the claims, they're pretty specific. I mean, to hear, you know, we're talking about specific conversations. We're talking about specific trainers. She's saying we're dismissed because of racism. I mean, there are things here that I don't know whether they're easily verified or refuted, but we are, we know what we're talking about here. It's not just some nebulous claims, which of course could be true, but here we have very definite claims. And the the Mariners' response has been, 
I don't. Am, am I wrong in, in thinking it's a little more strident than denials or we're looking yeah. into this? Statements have been well it's, on both sides, really. Yeah. Right. I mean, the way that well, this she's. I mean, came she's out, definitely being like this. Her naming names and and citing specific instances is yeah. Like, I mean, it it very shows you that it's but. yeah. I don't know that that's unusual, but it shows you that like this is serious. Yeah, you know, this mm-hmm. is not just uh, an embittered employee on the way out or you know on the way out the door. But you know, the Mariners have fought back. It, it's not just we're looking into it. It's she's making this up essentially it's very the the whole thing i don't feel like i have a a great handle on it because it's it's just not how these things usually play out and i mean if you look at maybe this is getting too in the details but a, a lot of the comments she says were made specifically about dominican players a lot of the mariners important players are from the dominican republic nelson cruz who is a free agent now but he's from the dominican republic gene segura robinson cano like these are important players in the organization who would presumably be affected if these views are are seen to happen throughout this organization and would probably want to see this investigated too, not to to speak for them, but this is the kind of thing that has Mm -hmm. a lot of different effects in a lot of different places. You know, if you kind of parse the Mariners' statement, it's hard exactly to tell. You know, of course, they're vehemently denying many of her claims, but They are also refuting the claim that they fired a trainer, but they say, you know, we haven't terminated a trainer this offseason, which is very specific. She didn't necessarily say that it was this offseason and and terminated can mean many things, right? In baseball, Mm -hmm. it's kind of a a seasonal gig often where you kind of work from one year to the next. And this is about the time that people get new jobs or lose their jobs and you can have a contract not renewed. So maybe they just mean well, we didn't fire them. We just let their contract expire. I don't know. It's hard to say. We have to wait for some fact finding right. to happen here. That's that's sort of where I'm at. I I want to I want to know more. Um, mm-hmm. And I imagine we will find out more before too long. With the uh, you know a lawsuit does get filed and Major League Baseball's investigation. If and if that, it's good that MLB obviously MLB is going to investigate this. But like you said, the you know the players have. Uh, a vested interest in finding out the truth, whether their bosses think this way. Sure. Yeah. So um, I don't have a good segue to the actual (laughs) trade that the Mariners made, which is probably the biggest piece of baseball news that, that broke since we talked last. Um, So let's just jump right in. Uh, The Mariners (laughs) have, have traded catcher Mike Zanino, uh, minor league pitcher Michael Plassmeyer, a Ben Lindbergh favorite, <laughs> and outfielder Guillermo Heredia to Tampa Bay for outfielder Jake Fraley and outfielder Malik Smith. Uh, this trade is funny for several reasons. One <laughs> is that Mike Zanino is an extremely baseball Twitter player. Um, one that Malik Smith was briefly a member of the Mariners uh, for all of like 17 minutes or something like that before it was the, the Drew Smiley, Shea Simmons, Luis Gohara, uh, menage a trois, uh, that happened, um, back when Jerry DePoto was making his, his flurry of, of moves a couple years ago. So, you know, this is an interesting trade from a, a, just from a purely baseball perspective, because Smith and Zanino, who are the two big names in this trade are two players who, have been kind of hard to pin down value-wise over their careers. Yeah. It's it's sort of the ceremonial start to the offseason is Jerry DePoto makes a trade with the Rays usually. And this is, it is an interesting one, I think, because you have Zanino, who's 
coming off a big offensive down year. And then you have Smith, who's coming off a big offensive up year, where I think he surprised a lot of people. And so if you just looked at the 2018 stats, you might say, well, the Mariners are getting a steal here. But on the other hand, Sunino was a much better hitter in years prior to that. He is, of course, a great framer, great receiving catcher. We have seen the Rays acquire a number of great receivers over the years, many of whom can't hit. And so it, it makes a lot of sense. I think this is it's kind of like how the Mariners started last offseason by getting D. Gordon, except that Malik Smith is better than D. Gordon, I think, and and they certainly hope so. He's one of those guys. I mean, he's one of the very fast, very fastest players in baseball. I think you want to know how many gr- double plays he granted into? Yeah, last sure. Year? Eleven. Wow. Okay. Can you believe that? Yeah, that's, and that's, that's wild. That's, that is. Yeah, because I think he was 14th in sprint speed, and he's one of those guys who doesn't hit the ball super hard, but he puts it in play and he beats out he's lots of grounders. He's left-handed and yeah. can run like crazy. So. Mm-hmm. Zunino is an interesting player because it's really easy to look at his offensive profile and think he's like Joey Gallo without quite the home runs like uh last year among players with 400 (laughs) with among players with 400 plate appearances Zunino ranked number one in strikeout rate just edging out Chris Davis who had one of the worst seasons ever at number two Joey Gallo was at number four so that's not a great offensive profile but then you look at who he's compared to the league average for catchers last year was just an 84 WRC plus Mm -hmm. which is 16% below average that's one of the worst marks for catchers this century they're in a very down period uh, across the entire position Zunino also had an 84 WRC plus so you combine an average hitter for his position with the potential for more along with a player who's a very good defender and that's a valuable catcher the Rays especially after trading Wilson Ramos uh, last summer basically had a zero at catcher. So even like on that, Zunin is just an improvement if he hits as poorly as he did last year. And I would expect him to you know bounce back at least a little bit. Yeah. And it could be just a coincidental cyclical sort of thing that catchers can't hit right now, but it also could be because teams want catchers like Mike Zunino who can receive pitches and get extra strikes. And if they can hit, Great, but if they can't, that's okay too. And we've seen the difference in teams when it comes to framing and receiving strikes really shrink over the last decade that we've been able to measure that accurately. And Zunino is just another example of that. So teams are willing to live with less offense than ever if they know that they're going to get extra strikes on the other end of it. Right. And that's the, I mean, the shock thing is going to be the 259 OBP last year. But I mean, in 2017, he hit 251 with a 331 OBP, back to back 20, 20 homer seasons. I mean, the temptation is to sort of look at him like Austin Hedges, but with uh, more power or Jorge Alfaro without the legs and not as good a throwing arm. But <laughs> We're describing a lot of players who are, aren't that great to begin with, and no, we're taking I'm away all their are, great these things. Are, this is what the, but this is this is the league average catcher now. Like, <laughs> yeah, the guy who can frame or good defensive catchers. Let's just put it that way, uh, with some power and not a whole lot of on base skill. And like that's what I don't know who is the the offense, you know, the the league average catcher, um, you know, ten years ago, um. But that's that's just what this looks like now. Mm-hmm. So I think this trade kind of like you were talking about earlier, the two main pieces had divergent years last year. If you take this as sort of a buy low on Zunino and a sell high on Malik Smith, it kind of just 
naturally meets in the middle. Uh, the other pieces are interesting. I think there's a distinct possibility that Guillermo Heredia is like 90% as good as Malik Smith. So there could almost be a trade-off there. I think he might fit in a little bit better in Tampa Bay's outfield as a right-handed hitter anyway, uh, as Tampa's sort of remade its outfield. They've added Austin Meadows at the trade deadline. They added Tommy Pham at the trade deadline. That's a really good outfield and putting Heredia sort of as a as a flexible fourth outfielder behind those two and Kevin Kiermeyer gives them a lot of flexibility there. Uh, I'll let you two talk about your your favorite pitching prospects, but I think it's not just about Zunino Smith. The other pieces are really interesting in their own right too. I think I think that's a good read. It's a buy or it's a, a sell high on Smith and a buy low on Zunino. And the other things, I agree. The other pieces do make it this do make this feel like a win for Tampa Bay. Um, but Plasmeyer is Benz. He is all <laughs> Benz. Yeah, Plasmeyer is a, he's a really good prospect. He was a fourth round pick for the Mariners just this past year out of the <laughs> second best college <laughs> baseball program in the state of Missouri. <laughs> Agree to disagree, University of Missouri. And uh, he went right to the Northwest League and he was absolutely dominant. He was the best pitcher in that league. He struck out 44 guys in 24 innings. I think that's pretty good. He only walked four. He's uh, one of these high spin guys. He was at an analytically advanced college and he knows all about the tracking technology and he is adjusting everything he does based on that. So I know from talking to someone in the Mariners front office after they made this trade that they were sorry to give him up because they do think that he can really be something. And obviously the Mariners could use a a solid starting pitcher. They haven't developed a a whole ton of those. So I think they were probably sorry to give him up too. Yeah. um, And Jake Fraley is... A guy I liked a lot coming out of LSU, he's sort of, there's this weird brand of sort of slap and runny LSU outfielders between him and uh, Andrew Stevenson, who had a a cup of coffee with the the Nationals. Antoine Duplantis is probably the best one of the bunch who is um, a little bit younger than Fraley. Fraley is a guy who demolished high A this year, but was old for the level. So, I mean, he's probably an or guy, future fourth outfielder. Maybe in a couple of years, he turns out to be Guillermo Heredia. Um, Mm Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I I like this trade better for Tampa, but there's a lot of interesting moving parts. It is a classic classic Rays trade and a classic Mariners trade. I like that we just spent, you know, 15 minutes talking about Mike Zunino from Alex Smith. Just just let us wait until, you know, James Paxton gets traded. Right, which could be any second now. <laughs> Leading candidate to James happen Paxton right takes. after we finish recording. I have got <laughs> takes about James Paxton uh, if he gets traded. And depending on, on what he gets traded for, here's one of my takes. I'm going to preview it. James Paxton, not as good as Lance Lynn. James oh, Paxton well, is like most probably take. my favorite pitcher in baseball right now. So how <laughs> dare out. you? Get out. <laughs> well, Lance Lynn's my favorite pitcher in baseball. The difference is Lance Lynn has, you know, a track record of extended major league success. <laughs> the wow. Of the, the innings eater versus the guy who's actually good. It is like these are the extremes. <laughs> yeah. Well, it feels strange to be talking about the Mariners on a purely X's and O's level. Right yeah, after we talking I, about like whether said, like their said, decision was, makers are racist or not. But it was awkward. I yeah. wanted to. I wanted to use the Daniel Mengden uh, rescuing <laughs> puppies from the, the storm drain story that came out this morning as yeah. a, a segue, but I don't know if that would have made it more or less awkward. No, I don't know. Well, what I was going to say is that there was some buzz before this trade was made about how the Mariners might consider just tearing down and going full rebuild. And 
I do think they're one of the more interesting teams, not just because they're always one of the more active teams over the offseason, but because they are in this position where you wonder whether at some point they are just going to say, okay, we gave it a shot and we'll commit to several more seasons of not making the playoffs while we actually rebuild this thing. And I don't know whether this trade tells us anything one way or another about whether that's their thinking. I know that there were subsequent reports after the reports that said they might do that, that said they probably won't do that. It seems like it's probably still in flux and maybe depends on what sort of offers they get. But Paxton can go and that doesn't necessarily commit them, I I suppose, to a long-term rebuild. No, because Paxton's not going to be a part of the next good Mariners team. He's too Mm -hmm. old. Mm Mm-hmm. Here's a guy who's not too old, Shohei Otani, the American League Rookie of the Year. That was a good segue. Not bad. Uh, Rookie of the Year. So this is awards week. Rookie of the Year voting came out last night as we record. Uh, Manager of the Year, which I don't know about you guys, but I don't really care about, uh, (laughs) comes out tonight. So and we'll deal with Cy Young on Wednesday or Cy Young on Wednesday. MVPs on Thursday. We'll deal with those uh, next week's episode. Um, American League, Shohei Otani first, Miguel Andujar second, Gleyber Torres third, Joey Wendell fourth. Uh, National League, Ronald Acuna first, Juan Soto second, Walker Bueller third. Uh, That National League ballot is exactly how I had it. And uh, Acuna and Soto, in some order, Bueller third, I think was the only reasonable way to look at that rookie of the year race. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I have no major complaints. Of course, you can go down the ballot and find faults with individual ballots, but On the whole, I think the writers got it right, and it looked for a while like the Acuna-Soto-Bueller race was going to be closer than it was, and it was pretty pretty close. Yeah, that is my one surprise, that that Soto didn't get more first place. But but I can understand, like, I came down on Acuna, like, on the side of Acuna, too. I did, too, yeah. You can, yeah, you... He finished the season so strong, and maybe he gets a playoff team bonus, I don't know, but I think, I mean... He's more fun. That's hmm. the yeah. I mean, maybe so. I don't know. Maybe people don't appreciate Soto's plate discipline, which you wrote about, which is just unbelievable for someone his age, and mm-hmm. in a way, maybe makes him an even more promising player. I don't know, but it, this definitely doesn't seem like a year where we're going to look back in fifteen years and think that guy won. Who, where's that guy today? I mean, you could say that maybe about Andujar if he doesn't learn to field, <laughs> but I think. I think you mean you mean in in three years when Andujar's got a ninety OPS plus is the <laughs> left fielder for the San Diego Padres could happen. I mean, I think Otani was the right choice aside from narrative, aside from the way that we all feel about Otani, because I'm totally fine with giving a rookie of the year award to the Bob Hamlins of the world. You know, Bob Hamlin beat out Manny Ramirez in his rookie of the year year. And that seems silly now, but hey, he had a better year. He was more valuable that year. So I don't mind. I think it's nice if a future legend can win this award, but I'm okay with just giving it to the guy who had the best rookie season. In this case, I think those two things dovetailed very nicely and players who should be good for a very long time were also the best players this year. I think if anyone should be upset, it's Harrison Bader from mm, the Cardinals yeah. who yeah, finished a bad break. Yeah, he, fi- he got one vote tied for sixth in the National League. And of course, with only three people on each ballot, it's kind of hard to place when you have Acuna and Soto at the top, uh, you know, and guys like Walker Bueller in third place. But Bader was 
maybe they're equal in the outfield this year. It's just a lot of his value came in harder to see ways. He was perhaps the best defensive outfielder in baseball this year. He hit surprisingly well for what was expected of him as a prospect. And I don't think his ceilings are anywhere you know near as high as theirs, but he had a fantastic rookie season. And, and I, I don't think him only getting one vote should take away anything from that result. I'd say the same about Jack Flaherty too. Both of those mm-hmm. guys are like they both had the kind of season that gets you somewhere between second and you know second or third on a rookie of the year ballot. They just happen to run into a killer top three, and that just happens sometimes. Yeah, I was thinking about this class in relation to the 2010 National League Rookie of the Year class. That was the Buster Posey one, Jason Hayward two, Jaime Garcia three, Gabby Sanchez finished fourth. So. <laughs> Yeah, so uh, here's to Harrison Bader having a better major league career than Gabby Sanchez. Um, Won't be that hard. He may already have. (laughs) (laughs) That's entirely possible. (laughs) The Rear MLB Show is brought to you by Burr. Burrow makes clever, uncompromising furniture for modern life at home. And as the days get shorter, the weather gets colder, and football, the NHL, and the NBA are in full swing, you know you're going to be spending a lot more time at home on the couch. Make sure that's time well spent with a sofa from Burrow. Burrow sofas are handmade in North Carolina with sturdy, sustainably sourced hardwood, scratch-resistant fabric, and a built-in USB charger. Burr is designed for comfort with a proprietary foam that's supportive yet cozy. Burr sofas are exactly 17 inches off the ground because that's the average height from the bottom of a person's foot to the back of their knee. Easily customize your sofa online and enjoy fast and free shipping. No more trips to a dimly lit warehouse on the other side of town. It's comfortable both in warm and cold weather. My cat can sit on it without the whole thing looking like it's covered in fur. And when you get up after watching a movie or a whole game, you feel that 17-inch difference between uh, the bottom and the, and the cushion because there's no creaky knees, there's no numb buttocks. So if that sounds good to you, you can get your living room ready for fall and save 10% off the entire site now until Black Friday by visiting burrow.com slash MLB. That's B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash MLB to get 10% off the entire site now until Black Friday. Thanks again to Burrow for supporting the show. All right. So from the young and underpaid to the uh, old and well compensated, there were seven qualifying offers uh, extended by major league teams to uh, pending free agents this season. Six of them were rejected. The one exception, Hyunjin Ryu of the Los Angeles Dodgers. Yeah. So seven was not a lot, right? That was, I think, the fewest. I kept waiting for more. Yeah. And maybe that reflects the way that last offseason went and people are expecting uh, another more six months of of winter for free agents. And if that's the case, if they don't think the dollars are going to be there, maybe they don't want to be stuck with guys taking the qualifying offer. And Zach, I'm sure that you have the numbers ready to go with the the Dodgers and what uh, Ryu accepting this offer does to their payroll. But that's, I think, a, a concern here, for, evidently, for teams that don't want to go over the luxury tax for reasons of cheapness, mostly. And it seems like they're kind of banking on free agents having a, a tough time again. Yeah. So there was that report, I think, last week that the Dodgers told their investors that they would remain under the luxury tax for the next four seasons, which is outrageous. And we can you know, talk about that another time because the you Dodgers- You sounded a little bit like me when you said outrageous. <laughs> the Dodgers yeah. print money. But uh, just adding Ryu's contract alone, that qualifying offer, adding that alone to the Dodgers' payroll would take them over the luxury tax. Now they could, you know, get rid of some of their back-end relievers on the 40-man roster, your Tom Kohler types. But even- just doing that to to get under the payroll leaves 
uh, to get under the payroll tax leaves zero room at all to add anybody. And the Dodgers have made the last two World Series, but they haven't won the last two World Series, and they probably could use some more upgrades on the roster. They're going to need to add a new catcher to replace Yasmani Grandal. They have other areas of concern. So it's going to be really interesting to see what happens. Do they trade one of their established players to try and duck under the tax? And if so, I think that's even more outrageous than than what we've already talked about. In addition, I think the the addition of Ryu to their team, or I guess Ryu staying with the team, is a really good thing for them because he was fantastic last year. I think his ERA was 1.97. Even if some of that is luck on batted balls and you know fly balls not leaving the yard, he's been a really good pitcher when healthy his entire career. And I don't think the Dodgers should be upset that they get to retain a very good pitcher, and hopefully they're not just because you know it takes them a tiny bit above the luxury tax. God, imagine being the kind of team that would be upset about having to pay a really good starting pitcher seventeen and a half million dollars next year. <laughs> yeah, With no commit, no practically no commitment beyond that. And you can see why Ryu took it because uh, I think Zach, you said when healthy, that is obviously the caveat in his case. He is not often healthy, but he has been effective when he has been healthy lately. And I don't know what to make of that Dodgers report. I think it was Bill Shaken who reported that document because the document dated from, I think, prior to their 2017 playoff run. Is that right? And they've made back-to-back World Series since then. One would hope that that affects their economic calculus somewhat. But on the other hand, you had Brian Cashman coming out and saying that he prefers to stay under the luxury tax threshold this year. I guess anyone would prefer to do that if you had no reason to go over it. But we thought that they were resetting themselves so that they could splurge this offseason. And maybe they still will. Maybe this is all just rhetoric. Maybe it's for agents benefit it might just be posturing and negotiating and and you kind of hope it will will be because otherwise it will just amp up i think the the labor battle that is mm-hmm. impending here we should see i hope it's posturing because i don't want to have to worry about inciting being uh having charges filed against me for inciting our listeners to violence <laughs> um i i did after the cashman quote came out i looked back at Uh, A New York Times piece from 1994 with the baseball strike, it was about owner efforts to institute a salary, a full uh, cap. And there was a line in there about how the players had been reluctant to consider an over-the-threshold tax because they thought it would prompt clubs to keep their payrolls at or below the trigger point and thus serve as a salary cap. Basically, the notion from 25 years ago that having an over-the-threshold tax would serve as an effective salary cap. And if the Yankees and Dodgers of all teams decide to stay under, like that's essentially what we're seeing now. One other related story to look at, uh, the Phillies are apparently looking into moving Carlos Santana, uh, who they signed to, I believe, a three or $60 million deal last offseason. Santana was fine, um, but he plays first base and so does Reese Hoskins and Reese Hoskins doesn't play left field that well. And if they make a move on a corner outfielder, like this just strikes me as they've just got nowhere to play him and they're looking to, to move him. Um, but there are two other parts of the story that are interesting. One is that they don't want to move. They're reluctant to move him just in a salary dump because they don't want to, uh, make it look like they made a mis or they don't want to admit they made a mistake signing him in the first place. And my response to that is, Nobody's going to care if you made a mistake if you replace him with Bryce Harper. Um, <laughs> but the other thing is his $20 million salary or is 
if that is exactly how it plays out. Somewhere in the neighborhood of $20 million, he he gets paid. I forget exactly how the contract is structured, but that that's a, a consideration for their luxury tax threshold. And uh, Matt Winkleman, who's a friend of mine who used to run Crash Burn Alley, uh, was doing the math on this earlier. When they get rid of all the, the free agents that they're uh, probably going to uh, renounce, they've got about $100 million to spend under the tax. And this is you know the team in a, a top five media market in the US that has run a top three payroll in baseball when they've tried to compete. They've got $100 million to spend. Like this is not, if they're salary dumping, like are they, are they going to add Harper and Machado and Keuchel and Patrick Corbin? Are they just going to sweep the top four free agents? Because they got the money to do it otherwise. So it's not just the teams that are posturing about staying under the tax, you know, we've got to keep an eye on uh, teams like the Mets and and the the Astros and the Phillies that probably should be spending to the tax, if not much higher, um, and are going to end up nowhere near it and are still doing these, I don't know, calling them salary dumping shenanigans is, is probably a little bit too uh, dismissive. But, you know, we got we got to watch the rhetoric versus the numbers in this sort of thing. Yeah. Players who couldn't be moved was kind of the Phillies' whole problem last season. <laughs> that was kind of their weakness as a team, immobility. And I don't know that- Oh, so, yeah. so this is a literal immobility Yes, thing. very okay. much so. And especially in Reese Hoskins's case, Carl Santana can field a little bit at a, a position that's not he that will, hard to He field, will gobble but, up anything that's hit directly at him. Yes, <laughs> right. And I think- you know, Santana was kind of the Phillies pushing in their chips for the first time after coming out the other side of this rebuild and Arietta, of course, after that. And I think that was kind of before teams realized that they didn't actually have to pay free agents last year. So they kind of paid Santana what sort of seemed like a fair price at the time, which yeah. uh, by the standards of the market meant that they got a bad deal. <laughs> so you can understand why they have a little bit of buyer's remorse. Obviously, he is a, a limited player and he is in that early 30s stage where guys tend to decline pretty quickly. And he's basically a, a league average hitter last year. And they just had so many, well, non-moving parts. Yeah, just first baseman. And they have to clear some room somehow and hopefully get some guys who can field. It bums me out that that they would base an organ and maybe, you know, maybe this is all nonsense, but it it bumps me out that a, a team with that many resources and that much young talent would base decisions on fear of upsetting who exactly, you know, it, the fans seem to not like Santana that much. You know, it, this was a, a, a risk, of, you know, there were obvious risks and they're getting sort of a, not the worst case scenario, but a, a less than optimal, like this could have turned out a lot better than it did. And if it doesn't, that's fine. You absorb it and you move on. The fans didn't really like Santana anyway. I don't know if they're upset about ups or they're worried about upsetting a local media that runs from either very smart to they're going to be angry about anything you do anyway. So this just seems like a very bizarre situation. I hope that fear of public ridicule, you know, God knows that's what motivates me to do everything in my life. But yeah, there's a reason I'm not running a major league baseball team. Okay. Lance McCullers podcast favorite out for the 2019 season with Tommy John surgery. Yeah. It seems like Lance Lynn has replaced or usurped, I guess, 
uh, Lance McCullers' place in your heart. At least yeah. I haven't heard Lance, you. McCullers went mainstream after yeah. the playoffs in 2017. So. Right. And everyone else doesn't think Lance Lynn is that great. So you kind of have that island to yourself. <laughs> I think mm-hmm. this is, uh, I mean, we kind of thought this could be coming at some point, right? Clean mechanics and durability and health have never been the calling card of Lance McCullers. Nasty stuff and lots and lots of curveballs have always kind of been his thing. So didn't completely come out of nowhere that this happened here. It is impressive that he was evidently able to pitch and pitch pretty effectively with this injury or or some stage of this injury toward the end of the year. And it kind of hurts the Astros in that Morton's a free agent, Keuchel's a free agent. Right. And, and they had two. I mean, they've got so much depth, though. I so mean, much. Pe- yeah. Peacock so much and, and Colin McHugh are number four Josh starters James, at worst. Josh Whitley. Right. The idea, just prospects upon prospects. The idea was, prospects. To, was to plug, I, I mean, this is what I would have done, at least, was to plug Josh James and Forrest Whitley into the Morton and, and uh, Dallas Keuchel spots in the rotation and mm-hmm. take it from there. You know, I don't know if this makes them more likely to bring one of those pitchers back or to play, you know, be in play for another free agent arm, but they've they've still got a fair amount of depth. Those three pitchers who will not be pitching for Houston last year, barring, you know, Charlie Morton resigning, combined for exactly 500 innings last season. That's a lot to replace. And yes, they do have depth, but it's not necessarily proven depth. I would not count against the Astros, who I'm not sure if they ended the season this way, but at least when I looked in August, every single one of their minor league affiliates led its respective league in strikeout rate. So they Mm -hmm. had the best AAA strikeout rate, AA strikeout rate, all the way down. So that entire organization is just full of pitching talent. Uh, I think for McCullers himself, there was a Q&A that the Athletics... Jake Kaplan did with him a couple days ago where he essentially asked, you know, what was it like to pitch with a torn UCL? And his first response was just, it was painful. So that makes sense. (laughs) Um, But that, uh, you know, makes me even more impressed with him. And he wasn't dominant in the playoffs, especially against Boston, but he was pretty good. And they were pitching him almost every game. That's kind of surprising to me that he was able to succeed that way. He said throwing his fastball was especially tough. And Lance McCullers famously throws a lot of curveballs, especially when he comes out of the bullpen. Maybe that helped a little bit, but you know that's not something I would be able to do. Here's a fun bit of uh, Lance McCullers trivia. Uh, Lance McCullers has uh, three 20 start seasons, three seasons of 100 innings pitched, and which is the same number of both of those seasons as James Paxton and a higher <laughs> uh, career K per nine. And Lance McCullers is five years younger. So, and yet you like Lance McCullers. Yeah, I know. I'm huh. well, I'm just saying that Lance McCullers is, is the pitcher that everybody thinks James Paxton is. Oof. Wow. James Paxton doesn't currently have, you know, a torn <laughs> right. uh, ulnar collateral. Yeah. Although he could at some Looking point. Looking at James <laughs> Paxton's injury you. history, you really want to bet your house on him not having a torn critical piece of soft tissue? I'm not yeah. the wood over here. It's okay, Mariners fans. <laughs> J.B. Bukowskis is apparently lighting it up. He is, he is this year's Lance McCullers. He is part of that archetype of the, uh, the headstrong, short power righty with big breaking balls. Mm. Uh, he was the Astros... Uh, number one pick in 2017. Could have been a national. Could have been a national. Oh, yeah, this came out too. Ken Rosenthal reported that uh, the Nationals could have traded Bryce Harper to the Astros at the deadline for Pekaskis and Stubbs. Stubbs. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Which I I believe I wrote a piece last summer that I thought the Astros, even though it didn't make sense, uh, that, that the teams would go for it, I thought they actually would have 
made the most, you know, been the best fit for Harper. And it kind of turned out that way. Josh Reddick didn't hit super well in the playoffs. They could have used another bat against Boston, certainly. I will say, though, the trade package that Rosenthal, looks a lot better now than it did then. Yeah, Rosenthal. I, like, there's a reason it. that's leaking now. <laughs> yeah. Um, and even even then, like Pekowskis has barely been healthy. Stubbs, you know, he'll probably make the 40 man crunch, but there's a possibility he could be a Rule Five guy. I just really like Pekowskis, so I'm probably not the not the right person to evaluate that trade package. But you know, whether or not that's going to be better than the the draft pack or draft pick package, which I still have not memorize the the compensation packages for qualifying offers um you know that that remains to be seen just wait for them to change the cba again maybe you won't have to yeah well at least then i'll have an entire year's worth of lockout to <laughs> right study <laughs> to familiarize myself with the rules um all right i think that takes us oh cc sabathia resigned with the yankees that's yeah, <laughs> it, was, it was not surprising, right? Cool. He's, he's in that stage of his career where he has reinvented himself and mm-hmm. it's fun and I'm glad he is still around and pitching at a pretty high level, like not previous CC Sabathia level, but he is an effective starting pitcher and clearly he likes it in New York and they like having him there. So he's a, a good lefty starting pitcher who has this new cutter and weak contact and it's fun. And also he's the long tenured guy and the clubhouse leader and the guy who throws at people and, and says, you know, things that we probably can't repeat yeah. on the podcast or probably shouldn't. He's about two or three starts away from 3,000 career strikeouts, which is pretty cool. It does surprise me that Sabathia has now been on the Yankees for more than half of his career. I still remember like his run with the Brewers for that half season. As That's one of the famous examples we bring up of a mm-hmm. guy who can make a big impact midseason. That was a full decade ago. And I think it'll be interesting if, you know, when he retires in a, a year or two, uh, when we have the CC Sabathia Hall of Fame discussion, oh, I could think he, he's a Hall of Famer. Well, could he go yeah. in as a Yankee? Is it is an interesting question. I would have never predicted that, you know, even a year or two ago. But as he continues to rack up stats and continues to be a capable number four starter for New York, it seems like that's more and more likely. Yeah, especially because he won a World Series in New York, and it seems like that can be the factor that pushes a team over the edge. Well, the weird thing is, like he he pitched more than fifteen hundred innings for for Cleveland, pitched more than eighteen hundred innings for the Yankees, won the World Series in New York, all, and almost all of his notable career accomplishments. You know, when he won the Cy Young with Cleveland, for instance, he had a couple memorable playoff runs there. But I like I he's still a Brewer in my head. Like that <laughs> that little three month run was so memorable. I hope it goes like, in as a Brewer. <laughs> I would enjoy I, that. That would be so awesome. I mean, he's he's definitely going to be a Yankee when he yeah. when he goes in. Yeah. Um. Uh. That was for that was my senior year of college. So that's <laughs> f- like literally forever ago. Mm-hmm. Um. Two guys who are also sort of on that Hall of Fame bubble are retired for good now. Joe Maurer announced his retirement. Uh, he's a favorite of the Ringers, Meg Schuster, uh, and Chase Utley has finally played out the string. Uh, he is a least favorite of the Ringers, Sean Fennessy. <laughs> uh, the two very powerful emotional figures in Ringer MLB Slack. Yeah, um, they both of them have excellent uh, high peak short career Hall of Fame cases. Uh, both are, and as somebody who values peak over hang around value, I would vote for them for the Hall of Fame if if I had to vote, but it. Who knows? Both controversial figures in their own ways, despite being diametrically opposed personalities. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
Ben, you wrote about Joe Maurer today. I think this kind of relates to what we were talking about earlier with Mike Zunino. The fact that the offensive bar is just so low for catchers really makes Maurer stand out even more than he would otherwise. He was a Mm -hmm. great hitter for any position. But to do it at catcher, where he was also a very good fielder up until he moved to first base because of a concussion, is I think what makes him stand out is something almost unique. Has there been a better catcher, a better hitting catcher since Mike Piazza and who will the next best hitting catcher who eclipses Mauer B is kind of straddling a couple different generations of catchers and hasn't been usurped, uh, you know, in half a decade or more. Yeah. And I think Mauer sort of perceived as disappointing, possibly just because of how well he started and how amazing he was through age 30, one of the very best catchers ever. But he's still one of the very best catchers ever, even though he only caught one pitch in his last game after age 30 and was sort of just a league average first baseman after that. He did so much in his decade as a catcher that I think he deserves to be in. And I think that people underestimate how hard it is to be a catcher, how hard it is to be a catcher at a high level for a long time. And really, you look at the inner circle catchers in the Hall of Fame, and Maurer ranks right up there. I think he's seventh if you go by Jaws, which is really just an average of his career war and his peak war. And I think, you know, obviously he had to move to first because of a concussion and it was a subsequent concussion that effectively ended his career. And that's not his fault. Obviously, you can't hold him responsible, even though some Minnesota local columnists try to from time to time. But the fact that he got that big contract and wasn't able to stay at catcher, I mean, if you look at the entirety of his career, he, I think, was more than worth what he got, just in the sense that look at what he would have been paid on the free agent market for that kind of production, and it dwarfs what he was actually paid. That's how good he was. And really, you just have to keep in mind, I think, that the bar for Hall of Fame catchers, I think, should be considerably lower than it is at other positions. Because if you want to decide who should be in based on who's already in, which isn't the only way to do it. You don't have to do it that way, but it seems like a a logical way to do it to me. He eclipses the typical catcher who is in the Hall of Fame already, and that's good enough for me. Matt Snyder of CBS was, quote, tweeting Twitter randos, which is always a a fun (laughs) thing to do, but they were yelling at him about. One of of them said uh, Joe Maurer was, he did nothing after age 30. You know, he was just a mediocre first baseman, you know, and provided very little value. And and what I said to Matt was, well, this guy's going to freak out when he finds out about Ernie Banks. And right, like yeah. that's the that's the comp you have to make for the Hall of Fame case. And Maurer, you know, didn't have the the great war totals that, that Banks had before age 30, um, just because catchers don't play as many games. But you look mm-hmm. at, at that offensive impact at a position where not that many people can hit. And then switching to first base, Banks was a below average player from age 30 on. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's uh, about half of his career, I think more than half by games played when he uh, switched to uh, first base at age 31. So if Ernie Banks is a no-doubt Hall of Famer, I think Joe Maurer is a no-doubt Hall of Famer too. Yeah, and Maurer tacked on at the end there. He wasn't useless. He was one of the best fielding first basemen. He still took a lot of walks. So he was contributing. He was just kind of compiling, but mm-hmm. I think it it gets him over the edge. You want to talk about the longevity too, if like being a 
catching that many games as a guy as big as Maurer, if you know, I think if he came yeah. up today, he'd probably be moved to right field or, or first base pretty early on. Like, I don't know. There's a pretty reasonable argument to be to be made that if he's a first baseman from uh, from the moment he enters the pros, here's another uh, amateur catcher with a great hit tool that got moved to to first base. Joey Votto. Like, does he have Joey Votto's career? I yeah. Mm. Maurer is going to wind up being incredibly historically underrated. Um, I think for it's interest. It's an interesting case that's. It's similar but different to Utley's because Utley also was underrated for a lot of reasons. Like we didn't appreciate the impact of his defense. He was a great percentage player rather than a guy who put up big raw numbers. Um, Utley never won an MVP despite being uh, a better, the best player on two teams that produced MVPs. Uh, I don't know. I vote for both of them, but I'm a big Hall guy. Last point about Maurer uh, that fits the Ernie Banks connection even more is neither of them ever won a playoff game. Um, mm-hmm. I, I was reading Ben's piece this morning, and perhaps the saddest line was that he played in 10 playoff games and <laughs> didn't win a single one of them. But uh, I think Maurer will most likely get in, maybe not first ballot, but you know by the third or fourth. I think Utley is a more interesting case. He kind of strikes me as uh, the hitting version of Johan Santana, who was maybe not with the, the peak of Santana, who did win several Cy Young Awards, but just in terms of that like really high peak, but just didn't last. Utley didn't get to 2,000 hits, which Jay Jaffe, who is right. the he Hall said of Fame writer, has talked about. More than once, yeah. So I'm not sure if he'll be as lucky. I'm not sure if I would vote for Utley. I haven't looked as closely, but at least for those Philly teams, like he was the best player in a World Series team, which not that many players can say. So, yeah. you know, he might mean you know more to you, Michael, just because you were watching him, but he always seemed to be hitting whenever I was watching him. Yeah, I think Utley is right on the line. He he is the line. He embodies the line for me. And so by the time I get a vote and he's on the ballot, I, maybe my thinking will have evolved. I certainly think he's deserving. Well, but I, I can help you evolve your thinking. Okay, yeah, <laughs> I welcome your input. It. But the thing about Utley, I mean, he has more sort of nationally signature moments than Maurer did. and For good and Yeah, Andy. right. They're not all positive moments, but because he was in these big market teams and he was in the playoffs a lot, I think people remember Chase Utley in a way that there's a danger of maybe Maurer fading a little bit away. I mean, I think, you know, the last third of Maurer's career was unspectacular. So by the time he is actually on the ballot, it will have been a decade since he was catching and at a star level. And there's a danger that people might sort of forget because he wasn't the flashiest player either. I mean, he was just a singles machine and a walks machine and a a good defensive player. And he had that one outlier offensive year, which I think maybe contributed also to the perception that he wasn't quite as good as he could have been because he never really developed that power. And that's somehow it created a perception that catchers are power hitters. Yeah. That, like, <laughs> I don't know where that expectation came from. Like, right. It, it, well, he was project like scouts would say, well, the power is going to come. And it, it just didn't, except for that one year when it seemed like maybe just a bunch of his fly balls happened to leave the park because he didn't hit more fly balls or hit the ball harder. It was just kind of out of nowhere. And I don't think that he could have been the Vado or the first baseman. Who knows? Maybe he develops differently if he doesn't yeah, have to catch. A, it's but completely different physical. Yeah, it could be. Uh, but but what you know, what are the signature moments of Joe Maurer? That's what I was thinking about as I was writing the article. I mean, his last 
catch in his last game is one of them, obviously. But otherwise, like he's kind of a an underrated pitchman. Like he's in the just like sleeper, just pitchman Hall of Fame lately. Like what ball player has been in more memorable commercials than Joe Mauer? The head and shoulders one. Head what and else? shoulders. I mean the the MLB the show the well played Mauer, which is stuck in everyone's head forever. He was in a milk commercial with his mom, which is just the most (laughs) Joe Maurer thing imaginable. I mean, who else has that many highlights of their promotional career, which is amazing because he's not like a a particularly charismatic, outgoing guy. He's just kind of friendly, you know, middle America wholesomeness. But that really worked for pitching products for some reason. Yeah. So here's the last thing on on Utley, to your point, Zach. Uh, between 2005 and 2009, that's five consecutive seasons, Utley was worth t- 29.8 wins above average, uh, according to Baseball Reference. And Yadier Molina, who you think is, is a Hall of Famer, was worth 38.9 wins above replacement for his entire 15-year career. So that's a lot of peak. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> Yadier Molina, also a catcher. Just like to point that out. Yes. Also not a Hall of Famer. But we we can argue when when Yadier Molina's forty eight years old and finally yeah, retires. If, if he ever retires, if if the ringer and, and indeed the internet are still around, yeah, wow. Bringing the up the Yadi is not a Hall of Famer. Take in minute fifty six of the podcast. <laughs> it, you know what? If controversial, if you've made it this far, you deserve the good takes. And now I think it's time to to shut off the faucet and uh, wait for more news. Um, so, I guess we'll talk to you next week. Thanks for joining me, guys. Thank you. Have a good one. That'll just about do it for this week's edition of the Ringer MLB Show. Thanks to Zach Cram and Ben Lindbergh for joining me as always today. Thanks to Mike Zanino and Joe Maurer for giving us stuff to talk about. Thanks to Bobby Wagner for producing today's episode. And thank you for listening. Enjoy the offseason, and we'll see you next time.